the Ortho PAC, hosted by Sam Dyer. Welcome to the Ortho PAC, where we discuss up-to-date orthopedic topics for the busy clinician. I invite you to sit back and relax as I attempt to fill in the gaps between education, current events, and real-world practice. Welcome today, Dr. Alex Bitzer. Dr. Bitzer is a fellowship-trained orthopedic surgeon who practices sports medicine with a subspecialty focus in shoulder and elbow. He is here today to talk about FAI. Dr. Bitzer, welcome to our podcast. Thanks for having me. Dr. Bitzer, what is FAI and what causes it? FAI is a uh, term that has been around probably since the early uh, 2000s now, and it stands for femoroacetabular impingement. And so um, the idea is that it's really a foundational issue that really stems from the bony anatomy of the pelvis uh, being the socket of the acetabulum and then the ball of the femur bone. And as the hip articulates, there happens to be a point where there's undue contact stresses within that articulation of both bony components that is somewhat abnormal. And so that can restrict things like range of motion and uh, certain activities that are needed to compete in sports and jobs and, and other things. What's your typical patient that presents with FAI and are there any risk factors? Typical patient that presents for FAI tends to be fairly young, either an adolescent or um, a young professional, whether they're a professional athlete or just a young professional that has sort of a weekend warrior and just participates in uh, recreational activities on the weekend. And so typically they'll present with pain uh, in the anterior aspect of their uh, groin, really. And they'll say that when they're either kicking a ball or when they're turning in certain directions, and oddly enough, many times they'll say that when they're sitting at their desk for long periods of time, that they'll have a cramping, sort of aching feeling in the anterior aspect of their hip and their groin. And, uh, you know, they might have seen a few people prior to, to seeing me, you know, either a chiropractor or a physical therapist to work on some stretching. And, and typically that's helpful for some amount of time, but eventually the, the pain persists. And so they end up coming into the office for an evaluation. Dr. Bitzer, I know there are risk factors, you covered that, but can you tell us what is the difference between cam and pincer impingement? And I know there that's not the entire categorization of FAI, but can you tell us the difference between that? And is it usually both of those, one of those or the other, depending on the patient? And are there any other injuries or things that you think about along with FAI? One of the risk factors, and a lot of this is still up for debate right now as to what actually causes this dysmorphology that provides a patients with the propensity to develop FAI in the future. And, and one of the big theories out there is when the physis is developing and the really the proximal fever is developing, you know, in your early teens and it still hasn't closed yet, that if there's undue torsional stresses across that physis, these are typically sports that require a lot of uh, hip rotations, things like hockey, things like soccer, things like tennis, dance, ballet, gymnastics then uh, some of the stress that the physis sees is too much. And so what you end up doing is you develop more bone in that area. And the, the morphology of the, the hip joint changes somewhat to try to adapt to some of the increased stresses that the physis is seeing through this developmental phase. And so that's one of the more prominent theories as to why certain players in certain sports tend to have more of an FAI morphology more so than others. In addition to that, risk factors are going to be really 
just having that baseline dysmorphology and then trying to participate in activities that require high levels of hip range of motion. If you can live your life that somewhat more in a sedentary way where you're not going to flex beyond 100 degrees or 110 degrees in terms of your hip, then you're probably not going to end up feeling that impingement because you'll never get there. So it's not an issue. However, a risk factor would be, well, you know, I have this morphology, but I want to play soccer. And so guess what? Every time I shoot the ball, I end up hyperflexing my hip to 100 to 110 to 120 degrees. And now I am causing contact between the areas of impingement, whether it's on the, the cam side or the pincer side. Since you brought up cam and pincer, of course, those are the two terms that we use to describe an increased amount of bone either on the femoral side, which is what we call a cam lesion, or on the acetabular side, which is what we call a pincer lesion. And the majority of these FAI patients are a mixed picture. It's close to 80 to 85% are mixed, where it's not just a cam, it's not just a pincer, but it's actually both components that are contributing to impingement. And so you really have to think of it more of as a bipolar disease, more so than a unipolar of, again, just originating on the femoral or on the acetabular side. Are there any other pathologies or other commonly associated problems that go along with FAI? One of the biggest things and something that we, that also came to fruition in terms of diagnosing and and really identifying FAI was recognizing that they were associated with a lot of labral tears. And so that was one of the things that really got people not only looking at labral tears themselves, but saying, well, why are they even occurring? And so then some finite element analyses and then some uh, cadaveric studies were were done to prove that indeed if you cycle a hip that has an FAI morphology, then you'll certainly cause some tearing of the labrum. And so that, that tends to be one of the biggest concerns are developing labral tears because as you can imagine, as you abut the two surfaces over and over and over, the thing that gets caught in between them is the labrum. And then the labrum has multiple functions and is very important in the hip for, for multiple reasons. One thing is by uh, decreasing the contact stresses that the cartilage sees on both the femoral and acetabular side as the two bones come into contact. The other thing is that it deepens the socket. And then the third thing is that it's a, a stabilizer of the joint. And so it actually causes a suction seal effect that has become really um, a, a prominent a theory as to a why labral tears are dangerous and causing some micro instability and therefore leading to maybe some early uh, osteoarthritis. Finally, in addition to uh, really the stability and the mechanical features of the labrum, it's also important from a proprioceptive standpoint. So it has uh, mechanical elements to it, corpuscles that really tell the joint kind of where it is in space through pressure. And then it also has nociceptive fibers that are important for feeling pain. And, and so all those things contribute again to pain and, and injury in the setting of FAI when a labral tear is developing. And you covered several points there regarding the history and, and the type of person would have it. Let's talk about the exam a little bit. In your presentation that you gave us in Charlotte, you talked about limited flexion and internal rotation as common findings. And I've always thought about Faber, the Faber exam, but you talked about some other things that were even more important, I think. The FADER, and that's F-A-D-I-R, and the C sign. Could you tell us a little bit more about the exam with somebody with FAI? The exam with someone with FAI, uh, they tend to be neurologically intact. Uh, many of these patients have a strong hip girdle, meaning they don't tend to have 
too many issues in terms of having a Trendelenburg gate or a Trendelenburg sign. Usually their abductors are strong. You can see some folks with weakened adductors, and sometimes you see that in a setting where some of their, their hip pain or some of their, their, you know, they have a labral tear that they've kind of been nursing. And it also hurts them if they try to work out their adductors to strengthen that. And so sometimes you will see a little bit of adductor weakness that coincides with an FAI or with a labral pathology. The C sign is something that very early on when a, a patient comes in and starts telling you, well, can you show me where the pain hurts in your hip? If they make that C sign, which is they kind of cup around their lateral side of their femur, their index finger and middle finger, it usually ends up somewhere around their groin. And then their thumb is more towards the back, kind of cupping the posterior side of their greater trochanter. Then typically that's somewhat indicative that that is true hip pain. And it's not in their greater troch. It's not... Uh, their hamstring. It's not an ischial issue. There's a lot of studies that actually show that it has a pretty good sensitivity and, and somewhat of a decent specificity as well. So that is, that is a common, easy one um, for you to ask patients uh, when they come into the office. And then in terms of the exam portion that you do, the big one, of course, is fader, as you mentioned. So that's flexion, adduction, and internal rotation. This is really trying to see if there's an area where you can cause the abutment of both the cam lesion and the pincer lesion that, again, most patients will have an FAI. And so when that does happen, it limits their range of motion. So most people that have both of these cam and pincers typically don't meet full end of arc range of motion compared to patients that are do not have FAI and have, you know, much more motion. And so usually flexion is up to 110 degrees. Sometimes folks say that people will have more flexion than that, but usually that's really, they're just getting increased motion through their lumbopelvic junction. And then internal rotation is typically 30 to 40 degrees. And so in an FAI patient, usually I'll flex them up to about 90, maybe 100, and then they'll start becoming somewhat uncomfortable. I can see them wincing. And then as I start to internally rotate them to 10 to 20 degrees, then that's when a lot of them will start saying, ooh, I, you know, I can really feel that deep pinch in my groin. And importantly, the thing to do at that point is to say, is this the pain that brought you in? Is this the pain that's limiting you from participating in recreational activities and sport, et cetera? And if they say yes, then that's usually pretty indicative that, that there is an, an intraarticular issue and, and you sort of work them down the line to see if imaging is appropriate. That makes a good segue. I was hoping to talk to you some about diagnostic studies. We know x-rays are important in advanced imaging sometimes. I was hoping you might review kind of your algorithm. What do you look for on the x-ray, some basics? And I know there are a lot of angles, and this detail is covered thoroughly in your presentation, but for the purposes of the podcast without an image to look at, what are some basic things you look for in when you get advanced imaging, and, and how do you go about that? The best way to evaluate a hip is always a good AP pelvis is a nice way to start off. That's important to A, make sure that you don't miss something else. And so FAI is obviously something that we take care of and something that we want to diagnose and treat appropriately, but we also don't want to be myopic in terms of working up a patient and uh, miss anything that might be even bigger than FAI. So an AP pelvis is always good to just make sure that the general morphology of the pelvis the hip bone, the pubic bone are all okay. And, and there's nothing abnormal and certainly nothing pathologic apparent. And so a good AP pelvis has both hips in it. It's not going to be rotationally off the uh, obturator foramen. You want them to look as symmetric as you possibly can. The distance between the superior aspect of the pubic ramus and the sacrum in the back, you want to be one to three centimeters. So you know that there isn't too much pelvic tilt. 
there isn't too much rotation. And so that way you can really get an idea of what the acetabulum looks like and what the femur looks like relative to one another. And just some basic things that I typically look at in the AP of the pelvis is I see how deep and how wide the socket is. It gives me a little bit idea of whether there's too much lateral over coverage and whether there's a pincer lesion. And then the other thing to also look at is to look at the, the femur. And even though it's not the best view to look at the femoral offset, you can always see if there's a big gunstock deformity, then the, you know that's that's if you see it on an AP pelvis, you know you're going to see it on a done view. Importantly, the other thing to rule out, of course, is arthritis. You know, sometimes we get patients that are a little bit older that are having hip pain and they've been told they had a labral tear, maybe they had an MRI already, maybe you know, they had a friend who had something similar. And so they'll come in and say, well, do I have a labral tear? And the truth is, is, well, if they have severe uh, osteoarthritis of that hip joint, then certainly they'll have a labral tear, but the sort of the horse is out, out of the barn already. And so it's not something like hip preservation is going to help them with. So evaluating the, uh, the hip joint for arthritis is, uh, becomes really important with an AP pelvis as well. And so once, you know, major things are ruled out, like arthritis, any sort of pathology that might be a tumor, a fracture, et cetera, and then you do see some mild changes that could be consistent with FAI, typically the next rated wrap that is very helpful is a done view, which is basically just having the patient flex their, their hip up either to 45 or 90 degrees with about 15 to 20 degrees of external rotation, and the beam goes towards the joint. This really helps elongate the femoral neck and sort of gives you a, a lateral view so you can see what the offset is between the femoral neck and the femoral head, where typically you're, you would see a cam lesion because that's kind of where it shows up. Because going back to that physeal stress I talked about, again, where that femoral head starts turning into the femoral neck, that's where the physis is. And again, that's typically where we see that increased bone deposition that gives the propensity to a cam lesion to be laid down. So you can really evaluate that well on these uh, done views. And typically the, the most commonly used angle for trying to best communicate with other providers and other people and research, et cetera, is the alpha angle where you draw a circle around the femoral head, you make sure it fits the femoral head perfectly. And then you draw one line going up the femoral neck, and then you draw your other limb of that angle wherever the bone exits the sphere that you drew on the femoral head. And so that will be your alpha angle. And typically alpha angles that are 50, 55 or above are considered diagnostic uh, for having a cam lesion. And then ultimately, there's a lot more. I think these are the ones that we use most commonly and quickly. And then certainly, if there's any concern for dysplasia, then things like a false profile become important to get to make sure that there isn't anything that we're missing from a dysplasia standpoint. And then again, there's a bunch of other angles. As you mentioned, we can go into detail if you'd like, but can be seen in, you know, a wide variety of papers that detail how to appropriately, you know, evaluate the hip for just about everything. You know, there's an old joke, how do you hide $100 from an orthopedic surgeon? You put it in a book with no pictures. So it's, it's, it's kind of tough to do the angles and stuff without the, the photos. But uh, yeah. again, I another plug for your video uh, when we get it on our website next month. There's a very thorough and good discussion with illustrations on it. Dr. Bitzer, what about MRI and CT? Do you need that if you're pretty confident with the x-ray findings and the clinical diagnosis? I get CTs now. I, I'm an someone who's someone early in my career, of course. And so uh, it, it just helps me. What a CT does for me is it shows me exactly where the extra bone deposition is, either on the pincer side or on the cam side. And so for me, I use it primarily for 
creating a surgical plan. So this is someone that I already know that we're going to go to the operating room and I diagnose them with FAI both clinically and their radiographs in the clinic show me that they have FAI and maybe they have an MRI or they don't. But I'll get one, a, a CT for preoperative planning at this point. So I know exactly where the excess bone is. So I make sure that I can get to it when I'm in the operating room. In terms of an MRI, I use that a little bit different than a CT. CT is, again, when, when uh, everything's done and ready and for pre-op planning. MRI will be diagnostic. And so I usually get them only when I'm almost certain that there is going to be a, uh, a labral tear when everything adds up in the patient's history and what they've told me in the clinic and what their exam looked like in the clinic and also what their radiographs look like. It's really dealer's choice at this point, whether you get just a 3T MRI without contrast or you get an MRI with contrast. Where I trained, uh, we were still getting MRI with contrast. I think it is a little bit more sensitive still compared to just a 3T MRI. But if you look at all the studies, actually, they show that the uh, sensitivity is equivalent uh, when trying to, um, to diagnose a labral tear. One of the things that's helpful about getting an MRI is seeing where the labral tear itself is, seeing how lateral or how medial it is, how easy you're going to be able to get to it. But it also gives you a little bit idea, um, more, more information as to whether there's a significant amount of cartilage wear, whether there's some loose bodies, whether there's delamination, increased signal in that chondrolabral junction. So it will help you to some degree, not only from a diagnostic standpoint, but also from a preoperative standpoint, because again, that extra information uh, will make it such that you're not too surprised when you get in there and say, oh goodness, I wasn't expecting to see this amount of chondral wear or this amount of labral tearing. You know, I, I thought it was going to be a lot smaller than this based off of their morphology. Great stuff, Dr. Bitzer. Please tune in next week for part two of Dr. Bitzer's presentation on FAI. Dr. Bitzer, thanks for your time. No problem. It's been a pleasure uh, chatting with you today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining the OrthoPAC podcast. Dr. Bitzer recently gave us a presentation on FAI at our Charlotte meeting. This will be part of a Category 1 CME package soon that you can purchase on the PAOS CME Learning Center. AAPA members may also access this content through the AAPA CME Central.